0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Marit Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor podcast series.
1: Jerry Parker and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor what news and articles caught our attention and of course where we do our best to answer your questions um this week it's just jerry and me moritz is out um so um let me start by saying good morning to you jerry how are you doing this sunday morning
0: great good morning good afternoon how are you
1: very well still in sunny denmark uh so uh enjoying a bit of cooler weather compared to uh, Switzerland, at least, and other parts of Europe. So uh, so that's very nice.
0: I'm in sunny Amagansett, New York, uh, enjoying the beach. Very nice, very nice.
1: I was going to start out just again uh, by acknowledging uh, some of those of you who, uh, who took time out uh, of your week to leave us a nice rating and review. Uh, We want you to know that we actually read all of these reviews and they help us stay on course to provide as much value as possible. So specifically, I was just heading into the US iTunes store and I saw people like GPC31. There was another handle called US Weeping and RCK7000. And, uh, you know, in addition to the three I just mentioned that I could see, uh, of course, I also know that a lot of you leave comments and reviews in your local um, iTunes store. So we appreciate that. And actually, for those of you who may not have had time to do it just now, um, if you want to do it easily, just head over to toptradersonplugcom forward slash review. There's a little uh, directions about how to do it, and it shouldn't take you more than a couple of minutes. I want to jump back to... Um, to the markets, of course, the market action uh, for the week. We had another week where U.S. stocks, uh, you know, had a a, a positive uh, week. Now sitting at twenty one percent year to date gains, so the bulls are firmly in control. Um, for bond and energy traders, I think it was a pretty uneventful week. Uh, very little movement on either side. Soft so and grains were. Uh, mixed, uh, while you know the VIX closed down at levels we haven't seen since April. Of course, all of that in anticipation of the very predictable outcome. Uh, I think of uh, the coming week's U.S. rate decision. It all sounds pretty, um, you know, good. Uh, like everything is is very rosy. Um, but maybe not so much if you uh, saw the comments that came out this week from the ECB chief, uh, Mario Draghi. Uh, who still has a couple of months left on on the watch. Um, He was quoted saying, it's difficult to be too gloomy today while the outlook is getting worse and worse and indicated that rate cuts and the resumption of asset purchases are on or in the cards, I should say, for September. And of course, we talked about this before. Um, We now have uh, about $13.74 trillion dollars Uh, of bonds with negative yields uh, around the globe. So um, I want to continue maybe a little bit longer today than I normally do about things that could even sound a bit fundamental type analysis, which is not what I'm trying to do here, but I want to put people maybe in, um, give a little bit of uh, impression of what is out there from some of the people that are worth uh, paying attention to. I uh, was listening to uh, a great podcast uh, from Macro Voices, um, where the Eric had Peter Warburton uh, addressing a couple of topics uh, similar to what I just uh, were quoting, and um, and he and he said something along the lines: a few investors today will remember the unhappy experience of bondholders during World Wars One and Two. When you look closer the similarity of central bank balance sheets expansion in recent years with that during World War II, uh, it is pertinent to inquire whether this is World War III for bondholders. Interest rate suppression and yield curve control artificially lowers the cost of debt service for household, non-financial companies, and, of course, governments. However, rate normalization, which can be policy-led or credit market-led, implies rising debt service ratio and painful debt dynamics for those who have grown very comfortable with bargain basement borrowing costs. Moreover, rising private sector debt services ratios expect downward pressure on tax yields depriving households of disposable income from which consumption and indirect tax revenues derive. The twofold fiscal stress of the rising public sector debt, services burden, and the diminished scope for tax collection creates the potential for an explosion in the budget deficits. He then goes on to talk a little bit about financial repression, which he thinks is, you know, usually played out in two acts, um, where Act One is where interest rate suppression. Um, but this is not, and I'm quoting here, and this is not, and can never remain a settled state. The so-called new normal is nothing of the sort. Rather, it describes an interim state of disequilibrium. When Act One ends, perhaps this, perhaps there is an intermission, enough time for a quick gin and tonic and a trip to the facilities. But very soon Act Two begins. Um, Act Two is. Unanticipated inflation, unanticipated inflation by definition is an unpriced risk. Act two is coming. So, this was just something I picked up during the week from another podcast. I thought that was interesting, but it also is interesting for me because uh, we mentioned last week that there was, uh, you know, Ray Dalio has been out uh, with one of his sort of thought provoking um, updates, uh, and, um, and he's also expecting this new. Um, you know, ten year or decade um, of regime change um, coming in the not too distant future. I'm not going to read from his uh, uh, article; it's well publicized. But again, uh, another one expecting something um, large to happen in the market in the next uh, couple of years. And so, for me, all of this just screams uh, to investors that how important it is to really be fully diversified, truly diversified, I should say, with strategies that are uncorrelated. Um, And, um, you know, it also suggests to me maybe that we'll see more trends, we'll see more divergence uh, two things that we as trend followers like. uh, And perhaps uh, we'll see that this will come back with a bit of a vengeance uh, in the not-too-distant future because of, um, you know, Slightly fewer of those in the last uh, few years. Anyway, Jerry, that was a really long um, introduction. Uh, normally, Moritz is here to give us a rundown of um, this week in trend following land. Um, but since he's not, I will jump in. And uh, and basically, on our side this week, I would say we, we did manage to squeeze out a small positive performance. Uh, pretty much matching, uh, incidentally. The S&P's year-to-date returns. um, And uh, this week, it was really led by Australian uh, fixed income. uh, Currencies did well. Coffee and a few of the equity markets uh, were fine. And there was a few challenges uh, as well, of course, in the week. Uh, Things like coffee. No, not coffee. Cocoa, cotton, short-term fixed income markets uh, were a bit challenged. And also a couple of the Asian uh, equity markets but overall a positive week not much change in in exposure themes or anything like that um, pretty pretty stable has been for a while uh, obviously with a trend following performance which for the year uh, and for the industry has actually been pretty stable quite solid Um we don't tend to see big changes in the uh, in the portfolio except for those markets of course where we've seen some major reversals during the first seven months of the year uh, as we've talked about before but anyways um how was how was your week how is trend following stateside well
0: pretty much like yours um seems to me that the big news is still uh stocks and bonds and uh, st- every rally every, every uh sell-off should be bought and uh, that's been rewarded so uh uh, commodities like corn and our recent uh, spikes, corn and gold and nickel, kind of, uh, we're still waiting to keep going. They are just sort of sold off a little. Uh, Bitcoin, my fave, has uh, sold off more. So, uh, hoping that those are going to come back. Uh, dollar, you know, the dollar, I think, uh, it might have made getting close to new highs in the futures or the cash. Or I think one of the two made new highs. But uh, interesting that because that index is dominated by euro, the euro or European, euro, more European currencies, uh, the opposite is occurring in Mexico, the Mexican peso. It's near the highs. Israel. India, rupee near the highs, Turkey near the highs, Brazil, South America, uh, South South Africa. So I'm long a bunch and short a bunch. So uh, defying, not caring at all what the index says, but uh, it's been a good period recently. We haven't done a lot of trades and I don't have a lot of stress. So uh, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, unfortunately
1: yeah, we shouldn't jinx it, but it has been a less stressful period of time, actually, unusually long, I should say, but I really don't want to jinx that side of things. So uh, let's hope that uh, trends are here to stay uh, for a little while longer. Um, and even if there aren't, um, and I think sometimes it's a good thing to just uh, you know prepare people for the inevitable, and that is that we will have uh, we'll have uh, monthly losses again, and we will have, Corrections and all of that. Um, but we are still, in my opinion, in a recovery um, because as an industry we haven't really reached new highs. Uh, we still got a little way uh, on our side back to the latest high. But um, so far things look like any other of the many drawdowns we've had in the last uh, 45 years on our side. So uh, so that's good. Exciting update I hope, on the uh, live event, we're slowly filling up uh, the live event, uh, but we still have a few uh, spots uh, left. As you may remember, we um, decided to do, so far, just a one-off live event. Moritz, Jerry, and I meeting up with a group of, say, 10 to 12 people max in New York, October 26th and October 27th and uh, really to create some major breakthroughs for those of you who uh, are into trend following or are into building a business around trend following. Um, so we want to uh, help you do that. Now, um, the exciting part is that we actually managed to put some of these details on a website. So if you go to toptradersonplot.com forward slash live, you'll see a few more uh, details. And um, for those of you, who are quick enough to grab the last few spaces. We very much look forward to seeing you in a few months. Why don't we jump into our usual segment, Jerry's top tweets, as we so lovingly call that part of our conversation. <laughs> what what on. have you yeah, what exactly what have you got for us in your in your mailbag, so
0: to speak? A lot of good stuff. At least I liked it. Um, not a lot of retweets or a lot of likes on some of these, but who cares, right? Uh, exactly. We're in it for ourselves here. Uh, you know, let's just start with always our most favorite Wayne tweet. Uh, <laughs> he had a lot of good ones this week. A lot of people love this guy, and he's just uh, really good at uh, bringing things <clears throat> complex things down to my level so I can understand and get comfort and to keep going with a systematic strategy. But, uh, he talks about drawdown mm-hmm. commenting on someone else's tweet about how drawdown, the, the, how drawdowns are tough. He goes, I feel like the depth of the drawdown is just the beginning of drawdown risk. The real killer is the time to recovery and consequent unknown areas underwater, unknown area underwater. While we can at least look at various past depths of similar magnitude, every one of them has a unique area and time. Modeling gives us nothing. Wow, because we're looking at that back test a lot, CTAs, and we're saying, ah, I see that we're a straw down. Maritz and I have said, well, what we see with our strategy might, unfortunately, close your ears here, um, be twice the return. So if our average return historically on the back test is 10, we're going to expect at least a 20% drawdown. Uh, So one to two, that doesn't sound great. And, uh, but uh, Wayne is saying that modeling gives us nothing and uh, we can't really rely upon that, which I I totally agree with, unfortunately. But uh, that's why I'm pretty constantly saying, I try not to look at much of the past, uh, as a guide to the future, other than I will submit to the idea that, okay, if the average trade over 30 years worth of data, lots of markets, lots of economic cycles is X, hopefully my average trade will be something similar in the future. But the equity curve is probably gonna be a lot different. The profits are gonna come from different places. Uh, we may never make money in bonds again, You know, as long as I'm alive, so what? will hopefully we can pick it up in other areas.
1: Well, I mean, you mentioned this thing about uh, you know having expected drawdowns twice the size of uh, the average return, and um, and of course when when people hear that they might think, "Ooh, that doesn't sound great." But let's take a step back and just remind people that well, the expected drawdown long term of the S and P is you know eight nine percent, yet it has shown us that it can have you know, drawdowns of five times or more. So um, so our ratio is not so bad, even though it's um can be difficult. But you think you bring up a very important or Wayne brings up a very important point, and that is what is worth having a deep drawdown or a long drawdown? And um I mean, none of it is pleasant. But I actually think from a business point of view, sometimes having a long drawdown can be more detrimental to your uh, business because it challenges the patience of investors more so uh, to some degree. Um, you know, A deep drawdown certainly challenges the fear of investors, but patience uh, is not to be uh, underestimated. And so, one of the things that I think is interesting when it comes to to trend following and trend following systems, um, and something I've come across in my conversations uh, with potential investors, uh, where they, uh, where where for example, we might get get um, compared to someone who's also in a drawdown, um, and where this, you know, where they say, you know, but let's just wait until everyone comes out of this drawdown, as if it was. By, by 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 de facto that we're all going to come out of the drawdown at the same time, and so I actually think that, of of course, the way into a drawdown is important, but the way out of a drawdown, how quick we can recover, how how good our our systems are to um, uh, to get out of a drawdown, um, I think is really important and something that I think a lot of people may not pay as much attention to. They're more worried about the way down than they are of the way up. And I think we need to be worried about the way up as well. Because if you are if you get into a drawdown it takes you six months, but it takes you three years to get out of it. Um I think that is equally a uh, a a problem. So I don't know if it's something you've ever thought about, um, Jerry, when you look at, you know, your research and, and stuff like that. But I actually think You know, you should also analyze how good managers are to recover, not just how good they are to maybe avoid the worst drawdowns.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I look at it differently. Um, I'm trying to have a good average profit, uh, capture the big winners, uh, have a good win percentage in the low, mid-40s. So I'm really looking at my... Those stats, and I just don't know how. And I've got to follow my system. So, I'm, and so, if I've got to follow it, how can I manufacture? How can I improve my drawdown and my recovery? I think it's out of my hands. Uh, I really just am I'm helpless and passive. And let's say when I come out and I finished number one, I had the longest draw, I had the worst drawdown of everyone. I was in a drawdown for longer than everyone. And then I come out and I'm the best performer over three, five, and 10 years. Okay. And I lost a lot of clients. So I just, if that's possible, which I think it is for you, for me, for Moritz, for all of us, that scenario, uh, possibly part of the reason I came out and I was the best performer is because I had nothing and I did nothing outside of the system. And the system did not contain anything that would help me reduce the drawdown other than leverage and you know my trade stats that I've already mentioned, uh, or something that was going to help me reduce the time of the drawdown. I just think that we're helpless. And if we're going to trade the system, how can we manufacture something better than the system trade stats? And, and once again, we over previous episodes of the podcast, we talked about this study that said that the top performers underperform longer than everyone else so buffett has definitely underperformed for long long periods of time and a lot of managers have the ones that underperform the longest have the best performance so it's almost like we don't want to do anything following that system creates the long biggest drawdowns and the longest drawdowns and also the best profits it's a conundrum i can't figure it out
1: no, and, and I agree. I mean, it is a conundrum, and I'm not. I'm not suggesting that you can manufacture just one part of your system. Meaning, you can just say, "Okay, I don't like the length of this drawdown," so um, you know. So I'm just going to change the length of the drawdown. I don't think you can do that. But you, on the other hand, you say that you look at your stats. Well, surely, but but that that, and that's exactly right. I mean, you, you would have to change something in the system. Therefore, your stats would change. But if you're still happy with them, and they give you maybe a you know a slightly different uh recovery profile maybe maybe that is uh better than 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 not i don't know i mean it's a difficult conversation
0: uh i think i think wayne's point is this back test recovery profile is not something you should expect in the future so to actively choose a worse system trade stats wise slightly worse a lot worse that had seemingly a better drawdown and, and recovery based upon the back test might be a huge mistake
1: yeah and i think well, generally speaking i think it's always you know challenging and 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 difficult to rely too much on on backtest anyway so i'm of course referring to you know, people like yourself, people like us, where we actually have really long track records to, uh, and 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 base it on real recoveries and 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 real drawdowns, nothing that we just pull out of a computer necessarily. But uh, all, I guess, my point was just that I think that from a business perspective, and we all run businesses as well, we need to also be aware of at least that uh, recoveries, the wrong ones, so to speak, the really long and painful recoveries. Can actually have a detrimental effect on on our businesses as well as how we manage the way down into the drawdown. Um, So, but Wayne always seems to come up with these, uh, you know, thought provoking ideas. So I think it's worth uh, talking about being aware of.
0: Well, another interesting topic we can spend a couple minutes, a couple seconds on this was this idea about um, an article that was recommending commodities and uh, if you believe in a reversion to the mean of the mean and when looking at things from a value standpoint commodities look pretty attractive and of course we trade commodities long and short all the time we love commodities they're the best uh i'd just like to see a few of them start going up or lots more of them going up and uh, i just think it's funny in that uh, one way to safely profit from commodities other than just and and it kind of you know it's kind of odd that the whole world just looks at commodities gold or whatever everything basically is how does it add value historically from a long only perspective and so we're just like pulling our hair out like you got to be kidding me you know momentum works you've said that you you authors of these articles so you know if you want to add commodities or currencies safely to your portfolio you've got to do it with trend following which is a strategy that works when markets don't revert to the mean for a long while so <clears throat> the fundamental crowd is looking for things to add to the to the portfolio based upon value and mean reversion. Uh, but in order to add commodities safely, you've got to invest in a CTA who doesn't pay attention to mean reversion. Except maybe we're all in favor of uh, our our mean our our average to look below average performance mean reverting to better performance here pretty soon. So buy CTAs and buy commodities because they're probably going to revert to the mean, I guess. I don't know.
1: I mean, a lot of articles, of course, in the past and a lot of analysis had always suggested this thing about, you know, uh, you know, when's the best time to buy CTA uh, is when, you know, as, as Bill Don, our founder, said... You know, always was you know the the best time to buy a trend or CTA is at the bottom of a drawdown. The second best time is today. I mean, obviously we don't, and the point is we don't really know when we're going to perform. But clearly, if you can buy someone that you believe in long-term in a drawdown that, that of course, uh, have worked uh, really well for for many investors. But anyway, back to your point, uh, funnily enough about uh, commodities, um, and uh, there certainly has been some money made on the short side um, in in recent uh, years, but the article I quoted in the beginning uh, from this uh, guy, uh, Peter Warburton, um, he actually talks about this, you know, um, inflation suddenly coming back at a time when none of us can really see any signs of inflation, and may not be now or in the next two years. But, but one of the things he he talks about in 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 this uh, interview is that. It could very, very easily come from a sudden increase in commodity prices, uh, even though it's something we we may not uh, think is possible right now, given the suppressed levels we've seen in in many commodities uh, in recent years. So, it's all about the the uh, the unexpected. Uh, but I agree with you, and and it's always um, it has puzzled me a little bit um, that. You know, we, we, we as an industry certainly started out having lots of commodities in our portfolios. Um, and it's a great source of true diversification because we know financials have become more and more correlated. So if we, if we want to maintain the role of being uncorrelated to, uh, to the traditional assets in people's portfolios that we're trying to diversify away from, I think it's important we maintain a large exposure to commodities. It is still, in our in our view, uh, when we look at the research, it is still the least correlated part of the portfolio. So so we love all these commodities, as you said. Um, yet, I do still come across people who say, yeah, but commodities are more risky than financials. Um, but as you've mentioned many times, people should never forget that we size our positions based on the risk and the volatility in those markets, so they should never become more risky as part of the portfolio uh, than any other market. So, um, so yeah, but I think it's it's an interesting discussion, and I agree with you. I mean, funnily enough, talking about the press, and you talked about these articles that always take the long only side when when they do the analysis. Um, we haven't heard much from. Some of these Bloomberg's reporters that basically um, wrote about the death of trend following back in February, um, they haven't really been out in force lately. So um, maybe that's a good sign that they have seen. Maybe they they are actually starting to uh, to regret that they wrote all these articles back then about trend
0: following never working anymore. They have to write something. So it's probably a contrary indicator as well. So We may need a couple more really big uh, trend following, hating on trend following articles, and then we'll that will signal uh, a new day, a new dawn, and uh, people understanding the importance of uh, including all these markets. It's the only way to get these. It's the only way to get maximum diversification in your portfolio is to use trend following with small losses, yeah. going with the trend in shorts. Uh, a lot of the articles that I've been reading. This week are they're sort of similar, but I'm always in favor of just continuing to beat a dead horse. If you know what that expression means, just keep talking about the yep. same things. But uh, one article this week stated that uh, we've heard this before. Most stocks around the world do not beat the risk-free rate. Um, it's just a small percentage of stocks that make all the money. In the long run, stock picking is a loser's game. Once again, from a long-only buy-and-hold point of view, and I write, and yet trend following using trend following on stocks turns this on its head. Almost all stocks will beat the risk-free rate by a lot. Uh, trend following uh, converts uh, buy-and-hold returns into uh, a different set of returns. It's not really correlated to the buy-and-hold set of returns because. Uh, of the way we size and then go long and then get out or we go short and so all of these markets are converted uh, from maybe not being that great long only into all of them being great even all the stocks make about the same amount of money and over a long uh, test back test Um, and as we've mentioned uh, our friend Eric did a back test of all the stocks that had gone out of existence through bankruptcy or being bought out uh, the missing stocks. Uh, And they made about the same amount of money using trend following as the stocks that still exist. So that's just something that we can never get away from, that uh, you will not get diversification and performance. And all this diversification you get with a CTA-type portfolio or a stock-only portfolio, there is no sacrifice of return. In fact, with the stocks, we've already said they'll all make a, make good money. Almost all of them will make money using trend following, whereas ninety five percent of them don't on a buy and hold.
1: So um, I I don't know if you've done this. I don't know if you remember uh, if, if 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 even if you did, whether you remember any of the details. But you know, compared to a long only. Portfolio of stocks. This is something that's outside my level of competence. So I because I don't, I never looked at it. So, but maybe you do. If if we as we mentioned before, long term returns for uh, equities in the U.S. have been you know about nine percent or so, uh, but also with some big losses along the way. Um, if you did trend following only on stocks, but diversified and and all of that, long and short stuff like that. I mean how much have you have you been able to quantify what the expected improvement uh, should be is it just the improvement to on the downside you get so you kind of maintain the annual average return but with a lot less risk or where do you see the improvement when you when you uh, when you mention that and of course we will caveat with this with all of the usual uh, risk disclosures that past performance isn't any indicative of any future results but but just just out of curiosity what 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 would you expect from a well-built equity-only trend-following system? Because we hear a lot about how it's better, but how much better is it really, do you think?
0: I think that's a good question, and I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I have seen those numbers, and I don't think that... Uh, I think uh, number one, I would say, is that uh, if we had to trend-follow stocks only we would have dismal performance, the eight or 9% with a 50 plus drawdown. We maybe we'd have 30% drawdown or something like that, but it would, you know, we definitely don't wanna be put in that situation to only trade equities, even with our fantastic trend following, which we love so dearly. So, but, so that's a given, but what happens is, uh, try to sum this up from what I've seen is that, uh, it depends on when you ask, like if you asked me prior to 2008, uh, trend following stocks, probably index the index of the S&P or trading the 500 stocks individually, it probably underperformed for many many years. You know because we kept getting out, and it was never a time to get out. It just went up, 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 and up. So trend following is scaling back and then having to take small losses and getting back in at the highs, and the index is just blindly going up. But then after 2008, not only was the drawdown a lot less, but mm. stocks were negative for 10 years. So, it de- so now would be a bad time for us to say, hey, use trend following for stocks. Because what's happened with the index since 2008, it's gone straight up. And the trend follower, inevitably, all 500 stocks were in the index quite a few times, was flat, short. Uh, Flat or reducing the positions, and uh, only to see the market make new highs. So if we have this you know, huge bear market, once again, the trend following of the stocks or the index will will have better performance. <laughs> you know, so it's just kind of you have to wait. You know, you have to wait uh-huh. until um, you see the bad side of uh, just. Holding on to a passive index,
1: but if I understand you correctly, Jerry, what you're saying is, you know, gone to gone to your head. Uh, if you had a could only choose one, you would still choose fully diversified, including all the commodities, the currencies, et cetera, et cetera. You wouldn't do just stocks only as a trend follower. Is is that correctly understood?
0: Oh, of course. I mean, I look at my portfolio every day: corn and wheat and Swiss franc and gold and silver and nickel. Bitcoin, cattle, and hogs. I just love everything I see on that portfolio. And I could never imagine not being able to be in those markets. I see them as trends are up, trends that are down, offer me so much uh, so much more uh, risk control, the u- ultimate risk control. I don't have to do anything. I uh, just get my leverage correct, get in gear with the trend, and I'm going to be so much safer and not historically not sacrificing any return there's the s p does not trend better than cattle (laughs) this is a shock but this is the question what am i going to lose it seems that stocks just have bigger trends they just make more money well yes recently that's for sure but i don't think that that's a good thing to anticipate in the future the currencies are just as good as the stocks and maybe stocks are slightly better in the metals, I doubt it. But something's going to be in first place. But also, any of these markets and sectors can be dreadfully in last place, as we've seen. You know, but uh, yeah, there's nothing as good as, as uh, you know, as just being able to look at that portfolio on a daily basis and see all that diversification. And I know people are saying, "Why don't you get a hobby and enjoy life more?" Maybe I should, but I really enjoy it on a daily basis. Uh, being in all these different markets, I thought trend following was your hobby, actually. So, uh, but <laughs> there we another are. another one, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, but but it's true. I mean, our finding is exactly what you've said as well. We we find that in our research that all markets has the same ability to trend and has the same ability to produce the same returns. But we're talking about over two, three, four decades, not in in a ten year period like we've seen now, where clearly some some markets have done better. Um, but that's one thing. But I also, I think it brings up something we've mentioned previously on the podcast, and that is, this is where I find sometimes that investors uh, are being given a little bit of a bad deal when they read some of these books about trend following, because it kind of suggests that you can just take it and apply it to, say, stocks only, which people are mostly familiar with, I uh, understand, and, and then it's it's all great. Um, but frankly, it may not be all great if you just apply it to uh, a narrow set of markets, and 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 frankly, not that many people can trade 500 stocks at any one time in a, in a trend following portfolio. So they end up either choosing a few stocks or they choose a few indices, and and the results can be very different from what Jerry and I I think are, are referring to here. So. Which brings me back to this point about uh, that sometimes it's not necessarily the best idea to try and do it yourself. I mean, as much as we love everyone who loves rule-based investing uh, and trend following, um, sometimes we also have to be realistic and say, well, if you can't get the diversification trading all the markets that we trade, um, you may be better off finding, spend your time finding a manager that you can work with um and maybe if you're just still interested do a little bit for your own account um but 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 you know it it is so important um to get that part of 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 the equation right meaning the the uh, diversification and that just requires a bigger
0: account size nowadays so continuing on our stock rant here um yeah (laughs) i'm taking liberties here uh but uh Morris is uh,
1: not here to stop us. We can do whatever we want today.
0: Uh, he, de- he doesn't. He never tries to stop me. So I wish, uh, for my benefit, he probably should. But uh, so, anyways, I was responding to a tweet about Crisis Alpha. Ooh, I don't like Crisis mm-hmm. Alpha. So I think my point in this was that Crisis Alpha. Oh yeah. So let's do the back test. And what do we want to achieve on this back test? We want to achieve the perfect portfolio. So it's got to contain all the markets, long and short. Longer term trading look backs than historically, but that's okay. We can manage through. We want to be profitable. We want to make a good return and at that drawdown hopefully limit stop it at you know t- twice the average return or something. So uh, so we're really gonna you know, that's our goal with our back test is to come up with multiple entries and exits, multiple systematic approaches, uh, different parameters. And so we've talked all about that. So I just think then are we going to say, well, how's it going to do with crisis alpha? And, and it, it, it seems to be a more perfect portfolio type of a system than a strategy rather than a perfect hedge type of a strategy. So I think by definition, the way I've uh, define this is that it's going to be suboptimal if we then say, now let's twist it around to where it's better crisis alpha-wise. Because if we chose the right time frame and the right markets, it's not probably going to be that great when the uh, stock market has these one-day to two-month sell-offs. 2008, yes, it's going to be fantastic. But uh, the sell-offs since 2008 have been short-lived. And then that's now been... Uh, turned into crisis alpha we and where were you ctas for that month or this month well uh we were focused on more creating a better a better portfolio than uh, being your buffer you know for a temporary sell-off then i go on to say you know real crisis alpha is having a trend follower trade your stocks for you let me give me your stocks uh, or put it in my portfolio where there is a fair amount of stocks that I can trend follow. Uh, versus trying to allocate 5 or 10% to CTAs and expecting them to have a meaningful impact on your dysfunctional portfolio. Because your long bonds, your long stocks, and then a 5 to 10% allocation to alts is dysfunctional.
1: Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point, and and um, and it is a big discussion, right? Because we 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 now live in a in a in a time where I think a lot of investors are are looking for the ultimate investment, right? Something that ticks all the boxes, and one of those boxes is, of course, as you say, "quote unquote" crisis alpha. Can you make money uh, every time? There's a you know something going on negatively in the equity uh, space, and of course, as trend follows. We know we can't, especially after a massive run-up in equities because we will be, by definition, long equities. So we will be highly correlated at that stage, um, most likely at least. Um, so that is a challenge. I think that's a that's a, that's a big challenge. And, um, and as much as I love the person who coined the phrase uh, Crisis Alpha, I actually think the term in itself is causing a, a problem for us because one we should not be known for that because we do, we can't actually even deliver on that and i think a lot of people are um are now incorrectly suggesting that we should deliver on it i don't think we we can as as true trend followers um and um and and, and secondly uh, you know we are an uncorrelated return stream by definition And therefore, there will be times where we are highly correlated to equities. There will be times where we are negatively correlated. There will be times where we are not really correlated one way or the other. And so this discussion about being a hedge or being an uncorrelated or diversifier is very important, but it's being taken in one direction. um, And uh, those who really want uh, or are considering uh, us as a diversifier, they are, you know, maybe unrealistically expecting us also to deliver... Every time there's a small, uh, you know, two week, four week, um, quote unquote, um, correction, uh, because I don't think we have really had a crisis for quite a while. I mean, we've had corrections, um, and people expect us to make money during those corrections, um, which is uh, which is not possible uh, always to do so. So, so it's a big. I think it's a big issue for for our industry. I think it's being positioned um, by various people. Um, incorrectly uh, creating false hopes and uh, and uh, expectations that we can only fail if 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 you if you try and position
0: your your trend following system like that. A you know, false criticism. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're smart enough, and some are demonstrated that they can uh, trade up strategy that's not anywhere close to the Chesapeake or the Dunn strategy, long-term trend following, and provide this crisis alpha. When it's, when stocks have a, a tick down that you can be positioned to buffet that uh, negative performance, then celebrate. I congratulate you, but don't drag me into this pretend scenario of if CTAs if all CTAs are not as good as I am and they can't do what I'm doing, they turn their back on their investors, their style drift, uh, you know, just do your marketing without dragging all of us and having to be critical of all of us. Uh, be thankful that you're an elite trader who can provide this while the rest of us pedestrian traders are just out there trying to make a living. Uh, some of us with fixed fees and no incentive fee. Uh, so just, uh, in trying to create a better portfolio for people rather than uh, when, I, when you and I first got into the industry. Uh, it wasn't crisis alpha. It was the, the marketing brochures would show the, the 10 worst drawdowns of the S&P over the past years. And how did CTAs do during those 10 worst drawdowns? And most of the time, we didn't lose as much. Maybe we made money. I mean, look, 75% of the markets at least that we trade are not stocks. And we'll go short stocks. So it's no big, huge uh, <clears throat> accomplishment to, be, to not lose as much when stocks have their worst performance. But these worst drawdowns in stocks were over months or years, bear markets, and, you know, we didn't do as bad. But now this is morphed into crisis alpha. And then how did you do last week or last month? Stocks had this minus 10%. You lost 12. So no good and so i think that this is the truth of the matter and uh and it's my hat's off to people who c- can have a, a different kind of business and add value uh i'm saying if you really want me to help you uh, let me tra- let me trend follow your stocks i'll learn to perform when the when it's a bull market but probably help out a lot by having a trailing stop and stop losses when the market tanks
1: yeah no i um couldn't agree more. I think we just leave it at that. Not much more to add to that one, uh, Jerry. What other topics came up um, during the week on uh, on your side? Um, I mean, of course, I should mention I haven't read it myself, so I don't want to really go into any details. And 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 also. Uh, fearing that people think we may have changed or I may have changed to become more fundamental-oriented. I will just mention that one person that I do enjoy reading, even though he's not a trend follower, is Howard Marks, and he came out with another memo this week. So I think people should um, pay attention to his words as well, Um, So, um, which you may think is not relevant for what we do. I think it's highly relevant for what we do because the world is uh is not a um is not a stable place to invest in um and never has been um and um but maybe in the next few years will as i said in earlier uh it'll be even more important to to be prepared uh and not buy the insurance so to speak after the event as we've seen so many times in our industry like 2008 or where suddenly the inflows because i still see press releases about outflows from CTAs, even 2019 where it's really been a pretty good year so far for many
0: managers um, So I wanted, um, I wanted to comment earlier I forgot yeah, about uh, sure. said the depth of the drawdown versus the length of the drawdown and I yeah. think historically I've seen it from uh, some of our clients that you were 100% right if the if the depth of the drawdown was severe uh, they weren't that interested in liquidating I mean, uh, they're kind of like, oh, oh, I can't get out now. I've got to wait until right. it gets back to the highs. Then I'll get out. And we actually would see that. We'd have a big run up and make new highs, and then some would get out. They were sort of like trading us in the same incorrect way that they trade all of their other investments. Up. And then, of course, uh, as you said, uh, just dragging on for a year being underwater, that would just... Be a lot more intolerable for some people that they just couldn't handle it any longer to continue to have to wait and wait for these uh for new highs and they would just get bored to death and just worn out and have to redeem but uh
1: yeah yeah i've certainly seen more people i think from 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 just observation i i certainly seem to have noticed that more managers who go through these very long drawdowns uh have more tendencies to um to struggle with keeping assets in compared to those who might have a big, big drawdown, but actually also have a pretty good, uh, recovery as well. So yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think we have a question. We can Let's, always... end,
0: let's end with, uh, Wayne, another, yeah, knock, let's go with Wayne back yeah. and forth that Wayne and I had with other people as well. It's kind of interesting. I'll get your take on this. Uh, Wayne says most say that good trading requires discipline. Yes, it does to avoid impulsive behavior and emotional bias. But at times, it also requires breaking discipline, literally doing the exact opposite to adjust to market nuances. The art is to master when to bend that discipline. And I say, well, for me, good trading requires robust rules. Uh, Some of my rules are eh, not as robust, like any that get me out of a trade before the robust ones are elected. So I might have my rules But then if crazy things start to happen, uh, maybe I won't wait for my exit rule and I'll have to reduce my positions due to losses or high vol or drawdown. Uh, So then Wayne wonders what I'm talking about and I just basically say, I'm describing how at times I break discipline and do the opposite of my core rules to adjust to market nuances, high volatility, crashes. Uh, by definition, these are low sample size events. So even though I have a rule, you know, it's kind of like a rule that doesn't happen very often, and it's not really a robust rule, let's say. So I think that, as much as I rail against constant fall targeting and must do things with our systems, uh, the rules must be have a high sample size. I do hold out the possibility that you know we shouldn't be a martyr to these systems. Like I said last week. But we should sort of step aside and reduce leverage and say, you know, this could be a time where it's more important to preserve capital and realize that my system might be going through a bad period due to high concentration risk and high correlations or whatever. And I think it's always good to have this outlet to where you can uh, not override your stops, not override your stop losses or the markets or things like that. But once in a year, once every other year, one has to be prepared to say, okay, let's reduce risk by 50%. The whole idea here is to stay alive. And when things settle down, I'll come back in. You know what? And it probably won't work. It will probably cost me a little bit of money. And that's my whole point. I think that's sort of the point he eventually said, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying now. Uh, We need to be disciplined. And for us, being disciplined is rule-based. Because, you know, I'm going to overestimate my discipline if it's just, you know, not based on rules. That is a tough question, right?
1: I would say that on our side, I can't imagine us not following the rules. Um, I've never come across any indication that You know, in the 45 years our business has been running, that uh, there's been any sort of discretionary um, overrides like that. Um, But, you know, um, that's just us, maybe. Um, Because I understand where you're getting from. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the things that I think... Trend following, at its core, uh, are really well known for is to uh, you know always be there to uh, trade another day. So making sure that uh, you uh, you have not lost uh, so much money that that you uh, that you can't do that. That's uh, clearly um, you know not something you would want to uh, you 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 don't want to over you don't want to risk so much that you you know essentially go out of business that way either so um so if it's something that has never shown up in your test and your live results and it's really a complete um new situation then maybe 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 you have to do that uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree but I don't think we on our side would would want to go down that path to uh to override the systems. Um, But that's just based on what's gone on so far. It's not to say that it couldn't happen in the future, of course, but um, yeah. I
0: remember uh, when I first started trading, we were using really high leverage um, and it's a different strategy and style back then. And um, an integral part of what we did was Equity cutbacks. If you lose money, you got to trade smaller. Trade smaller. Oh yeah, sure. And uh, I remember a friend of mine said he did a he did a research on this, and he implemented the rules, uh, the equity rules, and he found that you just actually make more money if you just trade it smaller, because the cutbacks were not a good predictor. You know, you were trying to preserve capital. But the fact of the matter is, you would just be better off trading half-size, and you wouldn't have to use those cutbacks. And, of course, that's true. And I think the deeper idea here is that the backtest produces a sample size of trades that is collected by every buy and sell. Buy, sell. Swiss franc, buy, sell, crude. And you add up all these buy-sells in all these different markets, long and short, over 30 years, That's your sample size. That's your system. Non-system trades, no matter how well-intentioned, are not going to help. They're going to reduce performance. You can call them what you want. You can call them money management, risk control. Yes, it is part of the system. It's not. Trust me. Not saying you don't do them because the last thing on your mind, if you're over-trading or if you're having a bad period, is, is it going to help me? Who cares if it's going to help me? I am not in a situation right now. I've got myself into a situation where I've had bad performance of the system. I've over leveraged. Whatever, I'm losing too much money. I need to do whatever it takes to right myself and get my risk more into control. Correlations are too high. Vol is too high. And then it doesn't matter at that point in time whether it's going to help my performance. We're talking survival so everyone needs to sort of trade small follow your system and then get ready maybe you'll never have to do it to to exercise the ultimate in risk control which is reduce your positions by 50% 20% 70% I don't know I'm just saying it's it has to be in your quiver
1: absolutely and I also think that that's the you know that's that's part of the responsibility when you do your research and you look at your backtest and all of that and that is not to kind of fall in love with them and think that that's, it can never go worse than this because I've got this backtest that goes back 30 years. I mean, of course it can. Um, and frankly, it's not that long ago that it did. Um, I remember that, and now I forget the, the exact period, but not long ago, not many years ago, many of our peer group actually many of our peers i think it was back in 2013 actually now that i think about it back in 2013 i think many people in our industry had their worst drawdown ever mid mid year i think mid year was a really tough spot to be in trend following um and so you've seen someone who've been around for 20 30 years of we of course many of our peers have have, have had you know have had that long track record and suddenly you see after 20 30 years a drawdown that is a lot bigger than what you used to be um and so um yeah so i mean i think that's the responsibility of, of what we do is to when you do your research don't be tempted to just apply risk that you can own so you can only withstand a drawdown based on a back test you should be able to withstand a drawdown that is bigger than your back test.
0: you know that couple of minutes i don't think anything is on this podcast is as good as what you just said that's the big takeaway. If we've done anything to help people, you know, that's it in a nutshell. Everything, just that last minute of what you said is just perfect. I mean, yes, we're systematic, but we need to be humble.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. So before we jump into the, there's actually only one real question I think today we've got, um, but I do want to just give a quick shout out to Andrew um, over at Richmond quantitative uh, advisors. He, Gave us some feedback and a paper that uh, that they have done on this. Uh, I think we were talking about signal, um, you know, multiple signals and speed of signals uh, last time we um, were together. And uh, anyway, they shared some of their insights on this. I think they agreed with our finding and what we talked about last week with Moritz, and and, and um, they gave that to to uh, Moritz, which he shared with you and me, uh, Jerry. So. Shout out to you guys and to everyone else, of course, who shares some interesting stuff that we can then help other people uh, with. Now, um, we have a question from James. James, um, I think in the UK, if I'm not mistaken, that's where James is. Um, Just to boost our egos, let me start by reading what James actually is uh, saying. (laughs) He says, I'm thoroughly enjoying the content on the podcast uh, the bottling up of vast years of combined experience in the rules-based trading is not only fascinating, also extremely practical. All the hard work is greatly appreciated. So we appreciate uh, you, uh, James, for mentioning that. Naturally, I have some questions. You infer that you're not a huge fan of the below system and uh, wonder if you could share some of your preferred system. Uh, and the below system was ah okay, I think he's referring back to the original turtle uh, system, you know, the forty in, twenty out, so to speak. So of course you've changed, we don't apply it that way. So maybe I think that's what he's referring, to, saying well we're not a huge fan. Well we're a fan of of the principles, but we may not apply the exact same uh, rules and time timeframes. Um, so in that sense, you are correct, uh, James. So one thing James is asking is just if we, you can share some of your preferred systems. Of course, we can do that. And then he has some questions here. Um, uh, I wanted to get your perspective views, uh, or respective views, I should say, on the point at which you enter the trade. Do you find it's better, safer to execute intraday as you cross through highs or lows or whatever system signal you have triggered, wait for a close uh, over the high and trade the following open? Or do you wait a little later for a pullback uh, or regeneration post the initial break? Would you consider a combination of these, i.e. a waiting uh, to each of these to be uh, a best methodology Uh, as well so I think so first question is you know we've obviously adopted the original or you have adopted the original turtle rules uh, or adopted from them we do something different on our side which I can talk about and then the other thing is about execution of a trade Uh, you know do we take the signal as and when it happens do we wait a day do we until we get it confirmed um, do we do a combination of that uh, let's start with that. There's one more question, actually, Jerry, uh, from James. But let's start with that. Um, thoughts, comments?
0: Um, let's say, uh, you know, obviously, I think uh, the core concepts that I was taught—it's almost impossible to improve upon them. I've not been able to improve materially upon the money management and the strategy and the philosophy. Free lot of which is in the public domain. The philosophy and how to evolve, but certainly the time frame. Uh, I was not able to. I had to expand the time frame, the look back period, uh, on a pure trend following systematic approach. And so I have a, you know, I hold trades for a year or two now, versus days or weeks or months, weeks and months, let's say, like some people still do, or like I used to in the '80s. Uh, so that is we have said many times um but diversified long-term play for one or two year trends longs and shorts trade everything the same way all of these ideas we've mentioned a million times and so uh, i don't know if the second question was the question about uh buying the execution highs, execution yeah you know, well
1: so? whether you whether you take the trade right when it happens do you wait until it's confirmed as a close above the break or do you um Wait for a pullback um, or a combination of those. That was the question, I think, Jerry.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think all of those ideas were mentioned or were, t- were discussed in 1983. <laughs> they're all kind okay. of like uh, wow, they're okay, all kind cool. of like bad ideas to some degree. Yes, you follow the system. Yes, you take the breakout. No, you don't wait for a pullback. That's not part of the system. Uh, try to buy the high of the day. Be a trend follower every minute, hour, day, week, month of the year. Always. Buy higher prices. Um, it's a loser's game to sort of nuance that and not follow the system and try to buy a, a break or, you know, do something outside of, um, you know, just being a pure trend and thinking that higher prices are better. You know, you're I'm waiting for that 50-day breakout or 100-day breakout. I can't wait. I'm going to buy, buy. I'm so psyched by this. This is how I trade. Oh, but well, wait a second. When it happens, I'll nuance it. I'll have to wait for a, a little break in the market you know what what are you thinking why get that out of your head it's just uh you know it's it's your non-systematic worldview your bad human bias coming through
1: yeah i mean uh, so i agree with uh jerry on 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 and obviously he's he's the expert on whether the original turtle rules needs to be changed or not but as you can hear uh hear james that uh you know it's really mainly the time frame that uh that has changed on his side so I can't really add much to to, uh, to that side of things. Um, I do believe that, uh, you know, looking at how we do things on our side, that there are many ways of doing trend following. Uh, so you have your traditional breakout systems, you have other ways of, of applying trend following, whether it be moving average crossover, whether it be time series momentum strategies, um, you know, so so there are obviously uh, more ways than 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 just the original turtle way to do things and i think they all have uh, benefits uh, and 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 uh, you know there are pros and cons with with all of them um and we use two of them breakout and time series momentum so to speak but in our own way uh so um so yeah so in that sense that's how we've evolved coming from pure breakout um that's where we started in the 70s but since 06, uh, we've certainly evolved the strategy. And since 09, we've had more than just breakout methodology in our, in our trend following model. So so that's one thing. Um, in terms of the execution of trades, I mean, again, Jerry uh, does it one way. We do it slightly different um, because we uh, we wait for the day to be over to run all our models. Uh, They're end of day type of thing. So we calculate based on those, uh, on that data, uh, what our new position should be. And and then we basically just go and execute once the market's open again, pretty much. Um, we could also trade, uh, you know, we could do it uh, earlier in the day uh, and, and get it done on the same day. I don't think for a long-term trend follower, whether you trade on, you know, on the day uh, or, or the next day, I actually don't think that's where your edge is. I don't think that's where the... Big difference in performance uh, will come, so I think either way is fine personally. Um, but make it simple, make it as simple as possible for you. If you use stops, why not just trade the stop when it gets hit? You know, there's no nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think uh, buying on the close, buying on the open, buying during the day, it's all fine. And I 100% yeah. agree that there's no edge. Your long term, how could there be an edge? Yeah, but yeah, that is true of waiting for. a pull back. There's no edge. That's different. Right. <laughs> That's different. No That's different. There's, no, there's no edge there as well.
1: Um, right. You know, I don't know. that. And you shouldn't get into that. I mean, I think this is, this is where it goes completely off-rail from trend following. If you start sitting and waiting for, for things to happen after you get your signal if you get your signal you get in or you get out that's that's it end of end of chapter but exactly. uh, yeah don't yeah don't add anything to that next question last question from james is what do you find is your average leverage in the portfolio and how many positions would you have on at any one time with so much diversification by asset class and process one would assume you always have a lot of trades on well i'm happy to go first on this one uh, so james we trade uh you know 53 54 different futures markets from a trend following perspective and i would say usually we have positions on in all of them but because we don't really have a because we have multiple systems we don't it would be very rare we would have absolutely zero contracts on but our positions can be so small that you could probably say we're pretty much flat in a market so that's different um so um, so that's how we do it Leverage is something that I think is a hard uh, concept to quantify because it means slightly different things to different people, especially if you trade some of the futures markets that we trade, where notional contract value can be big. But if you know where you're getting out, your risk is obviously contained to some degree. So, um, but yeah, I mean, leverage can be in notional terms uh, quite sizable five, 10 times is not unheard of in our industry for sure. Um, Maybe another way better to look at it. If you're a diversified trader, is just to look at your uh, margin to equity ratio because we trade more or less the same market. So, so if you if you um, think of people who may run say a ten percent margin to equity ratio, I would call them kind of lower risk ish. Um, you know, our certainly our institutional version of our program runs in that area, ten to twelve percent, while our original fully leveraged high octane trend following strategy, um, it's twice that. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't get even further up the curve in terms of margin to equity ratio when you're fully invested. But it's usually also where you're doing well because there are lots of trends, lots of opportunities. So as long as you have a good risk process, good way of managing your risk, good way of, of making sure you get out once um, things get a little bit tough, um, You know, don't be too afraid and bogged down with whether it's you know, one number or another. But but make sure you have good risk management tools. I actually think risk management, funnily enough, I think it's a hugely important part of what we do. Um, and talk about edge, I think you can have some edge um, with good risk management.
0: I agree with how it's <clears throat> difficult to explain. Um, I looked at our portfolio and it's, of the maximum positions we can have on uh, risk-wise, we were at 70%, equally long and short, which would reduce perform, uh, risk. It's always helpful. The longs are c- sort of correlated, the shorts are kind of correlated, uh, regardless of the sector, let's say. So, um, and in the longer term you trade, you're going to have you know more of your positions on, max positions on and that may sound like well gosh that's a real negative for longer term and i'm going to be in the markets and have positions on bigger positions on just by that one fact but it is but the problem is is that the shorter term you trade you know you're setting yourself up to having to get back in the market that you just got out of obviously so um that's to be avoided as well. I think you know you want to find that sweet spot where it's not too long-term, but it's not too short-term either. And then the way I would look at the risk and the leverage would be strictly, um, and I'm going to choose my words very carefully, so there's not going to be any reason for any follow-up. Just keep listening to what, what I, how I would describe this. And that is that uh, I look at it in terms of how much are you risking when the market has an average move you know on a daily basis let's say it Mm -hmm. moves a certain you know if gold moves ten dollars on average these days you know how much if i have a long position or a short position how much am i going to you know how much is that going to impact my portfolio so i think you know something like 10 basis points five basis points somewhere in between there per market i've got on a lot of trades a lot of markets over 75, 80 markets, and I have positions in 75% of them, of my max position. I might be in all the markets, like Neil said, but some of the positions uh, are small. Some of my systems are long. Some of my systems can be short in the same market, let's say. But it's that's how I look at it. Is you know, Sort of normal things happen in each market. How much should I expect the market to move, uh, uh, my portfolio to, to make or lose? And a lot of these positions, they're very... Uh, You know they'll be xed out because you know um, there's a lot of diversification there so there'll be extreme periods where you even you know usually you make 50 basis points or lose 50 basis points a day there can be times where you lose three percent in a day because of volatility and correlations but uh, i think looking at things on sort of a normal average day what should i expect uh, my profit and loss to be i think that's where the rubber meets the road
1: Mm, I couldn't agree more I think that's really important actually that's great uh, advice uh, from you Jerry and I think people need to track this I know we, we, we pay a lot of attention to that you know our expected volatility on a daily basis we track very carefully our outliers uh, you know so we know exactly how many to expect on a yearly basis as well all of these things are important so uh, I'm glad you brought that up um, James I hope that was uh, some of the answers you were looking for um, while you think, Jerry, of anything else that you want to bring up, um, then I will just run through the performance uh, as of Thursday. So uh, I think Friday was a positive month. Oh, uh, sorry, positive month, positive day, a slight at least uh, for most uh, trend followers. Um, but these numbers are as of Thursday, so up 247 uh, for the month of the Beta 50 index, uh, up 7.9% for the year. Sock CT index up 2.63 for the month, up 7.54 for the year. The Sock Trend index up 3.62 for the month, up 11.32% for the year. And the Short Term Traders Index up uh, 41 basis points for the month, up 66 basis points for the year. And the bridge alternatives index up 2.28% for the uh, month and up 7.83% for the year. So still solid uh, across the board for at least trend followers, longer, medium to longer term trend followers. Since mortgage is out, we still have a free slate. Jerry, we can talk about anything we want without restrictions. <laughs> I'm just teasing Morris here. Um, anything else you want to bring up um, that you think would be useful to set the week a, a week where we're going to have a, a US rate decision lots of anticipation in the markets
0: Yeah, I will just uh, uh, shout out to our f- friend and uh, podcast guest a few weeks ago Salem Abraham is uh, oh, yeah. going to shut down his 30-year track record of trading futures, uh, trend following, and uh, go into more of a uh, traditional business of, uh, I guess he described it as uh, what uh, the some of the endowments do, long stocks, long permanent long stocks, long bonds with six to 10 hedge funds on the side are added. So I uh, wish him luck on that, and we'll miss him. And, uh, Frankly, or honestly, hopefully, it's a good—it's be a good sign for us that uh, as more of our brethren uh, retire or s- get frustrated and uh, call it call it quits on our lifelong pursuit of trend following, that you uh, don't mean something good for the rest of us who remain, or maybe we'll be joining them. Who knows? But we're <laughs> undeterred at this moment.
1: Absolutely, we of course wish Salem uh, the best with his new venture. Uh, and, as you said, it's always sad to see um, you know uh, a, a fellow peer who's been around for a long time, done really well for his uh, investors um, you know decide not to pursue trend following anymore. Um, but that is the business we're in. Um, I think on that note, Let's wrap up uh, our conversation this week, Uh, Jerry. We hope that all of you enjoyed it. Uh, Let me just say, uh, if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can. Um, Not financially, I mean, but I mean if you just head over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review uh, and leave us a nice comment and rating, you will actually be helping us much more than you Uh, think. So we would appreciate that. For those of you interested in the live event, now you can just hit uh, toptradersonplot.com forward slash live and you'll see all the information you need to reserve one of the few spots that are left for this New York uh, event. And all that's left for me to say is that from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on next week's edition of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Thanks for
0: listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the
1: subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show.
0: And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.